now. Uh, I totally lost. That's okay. <laughs> Jesus! They're, they're, someone's paying attention. Uh, as parents or as people in middle age, you're wondering, Jesus speaking to what I'm going through. Give me a sermon on how to fix my marriage. Give me a sermon on how to fix my kids. No, you need Jesus. Maybe you're a senior getting older in life and you're wondering, have I wasted my life pursuing the wrong things, going after the wrong things? We all have these questions, these things that demand our attention and our time. Is Jesus worth it? Into our situations, is Jesus worthy of our pursuit for the rest of our lives? I want to read a passage from a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Last week, uh, it's this book about not wasting your life and you look back. Was it worth it to follow Jesus? And I always feel awkward as a 29 Pursue Jesus for the rest of your life because it's worth it because I'm only 29. He's very much older than 29. He's been around the block. He's preached. He's been pastor. And here's what he says. He says, you may not be sure that you want your life to make a difference. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you just have a good job with a good wife or a husband and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends, a few good friends, a fun retirement, and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have all that, even without God, you think you'd be satisfied. That is a tragedy in the making, a wasted life. He gives an example of what life doesn't look like. It says in April 2000, and Laura Edwards West Africa. Listen to this. Ruby was over. Sing one great thing among the un and missions. Laura, a medical doctor, pitching 80 years old, Cameroon, failed. For a clip, instantly, a congregation, tragedy, great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a those lives were not wasted, and those lives were not He then goes on to say, here's what a wasted life looks like. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirements from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. When he was 59, 51. Now they live Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot boat, play softball, and collect shit. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American. 
Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Christ, at the great day of judgment, look, Lord, that is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace a tragic dream. Over my protest, don't buy it, don't life. It was written by a wise man, uh, but there's even a wiser man who lived who wrote the same exact Be in the book of Philippians today, Philippians chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, if you just want to lift your hand up, our wonderful ushers will bring you one so that you can follow us in God's Word. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and we're going to see what Paul has to say about the life that's not wasted, the life that's lived in the pursuit of Jesus Christ, the life that finds our joy, our passion, our treasure only in Him. Verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's saying, I'm going to write you the same thing over again. And it's no trouble for me and it's a it's a safeguard for you. As you walk through this Christian life, this is going to provide you protection. This is going to be the foundation you build upon. This is going to be what matters. So what is that thing? If we don't answer the question in these first two verses, we've completely missed the point of what Paul is saying. It starts out by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Is Paul's main emphasis here joy? Rejoicing. A lot of people say Philippians is the book of joy. Paul mentions joy over and over and over again. In Philippians 4.4, 4, he says, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. Finding joy, not in your circumstances, but in God who gives joy. That when your identity is in Christ, that Christ's joy becomes your joy, and you live in that joy. I think joy is a result of this other thing that Paul is focusing on. Other people will read this passage and they'll say, Paul is focusing on false teachers. Verse those who mutilate the flesh. These are people who are speaking to the church and trying to drag people away from the gospel. They're coming in and saying, you need Jesus, yes, but you also need this. You need Jesus, you need Jesus and the law of Moses. But it's not the main point of this passage. Paul's message is watch out for false teachers. Because no one mentioned false teachers. He actually commends for holding fast the truth and not giving in. The point of this passage is not false teachers. What then could it be? What is Paul writing about again that's safety for us? It's the it's Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. Paul saying, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, the gospel, because you need to remember it. I've told you it already. I've written about it before, but you easily forget, and so I'm not going to tell you again. 
And I'm going to tell you again, and I'm going to tell you again because it's the only thing that matters. The church in Philippi is actually a really cool story. In order to understand this passage, we've got to backtrack a little bit to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 10, Paul goes to Philippi, and he's going to plant a church. But the way he gets there is unique. Acts 16, verse 6, he says, And they went to the region of whatever that word is in Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. The Spirit has forbidden him. Verse 7, And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Paul's trying to figure out where he's supposed to go. He goes this way. God says no. Goes this way. No. And so he takes a nap to try to figure it out later. And a vision appeared. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Help us, Paul. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Macedonia was a, a town in, in whatever country it's in. Uh, and there was a city in Macedonia called Philippi. That's where Paul ends up when he goes to Macedonia. He comes into the city of Philippi, and he goes down by the river because he hears rumors that there might be prayer by the river. And he meets a girl named Lydia, and he preaches the gospel to her, and she ends up getting baptized right away. Preaches the gospel, she gets baptized. They, they go on the way. Uh, he said, the, Lydia says, stay with us a while. And so they go, and as they're going, they pass by a teenage girl, a slave girl who is possessed by a demon. And instead of helping this woman, the men of the city have used her to make money because she tells the future. She, she knows what people are thinking. And so they benefited financially from her. And Paul and She cried, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you. Paul says, come out of the name of Christ Jesus. And the demon comes out, the woman is healed, and she joins Paul in journey. The people of the town are happy that they've taken away the source of income, and so they put Paul and Silas into prison. Most of us will know prison, and they're praying, and they're singing hymns to God way comes and unlocks the doors of the cells. The Philippians kill himself because things Paul says, we're right there. I love this. The guard comes up to him and says, do to be saved. And they said, believe in the Lord you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. I'm going to write the same things to you that I've already written and already said. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7 says that he's in prison because of the defense of the gospel. Verse 14, he says that his brothers who have seen Paul in prison are now speaking the word without fear. Verse 18, he says that the gospel is being preached in Philippi, and because of that, I rejoice. Verse 27, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And later on he says, strive side by side with each other for the faith of the gospel. 
The gospel is this passage. And so Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because of Jesus. Write the same things about the gospel to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so we already get a taste of how important the gospel is to Paul. If you venture out into other of his letters, more and more this theme of the gospel played out. Is the rock that you build everything else. And so we people who don't put their faith completely. They don't see the supremacy of Christ, understand the joy that comes through faith alone. But it's to the gospel. We've seen a hint in verse 2 where he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate. But he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence, no confidence in this earthly body that is in rebellion against, that is weak, that gets sick and dies, that falls apart, that gets old and breaks. There's nothing good in this body. Paul says, we in that flesh. He's going to use that phrase three more times in the next few verses. As though I myself have reason for confidence in the so If anyone else thinks he has reason, I have more. And so Paul's going to play a game with them. He's going to say, you want to put confidence in your flesh? You think that that's going to bring you joy? It's not. And here's how I know, because I put confidence. Before I came to know Christ, this is what I pursued. This is what I went after. This is what I found my value in. Confidence in the flesh he comes, talks about in verse 5 is he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. There's four things that he was birthed into that were given to him because of his family. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a he, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the people of Israel. Then there's three things that he accomplished because of his work and his. Verse 6, as to zeal, or then verse a Pharisee, a teacher, a leader, a ruler, one who understands and seeks to obey all of the law. As to zeal, a persecutor, passion, you think you're passionate. I went after the church. I tried to kill those who followed Jesus Christ and succeeded in all places. The law, blameless. Paul says, this is my resume. This is who I You want to boast about what you've done? I can boast even more. Paul had it all. He had undergone the proper rituals. He was a member of God's chosen people. He was from a favored tribe in Israel. He diligently maintained his heritage. Devout legalist in Judaism conformed to the outward requirements of all of the law. That makes sense to us because we're not Jewish. We're 2,000 years removed from culture. We don't understand really what a Pharisee is, or what it means to be born, a circumcised, what that meant for the people of Israel. Instead, if you speak in our as I was baptized, as I was confirmed in the church, I grew up in the church, came from a good family. My parents go to church. I know someone who 
I have a good reputation in my community. My neighbors all love me and respect me. I'm a good moral person. I'm not a bad person like other people. I am passionate about God even. I listen to worship music every second. I volunteer for every ministry. I serve at every event. I'm obedient. I go to church every Sunday and I read my Bible and I pray. That's kind of what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you want confidence in your flesh, Paul says, I have pursued it. And at the end of the worth it. Why? Because Paul met Jesus. This was for his journey to uh, kill people of the church. And he's on the road and, and the light shines brightly on him. Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? This is what Paul was like before that moment. Putting pride in his flesh. Confidence in what he achieved and what he accomplished. And when he met Jesus, that disappeared. How do I know that? Let's look at verse 7. But, in I have. Paul used gain and loss throughout the book of Philippians, this chapter. He's saying, I take stock of my life when I count what's worth it. I can put it into a list and categories of this is gain and this is loss. Four category family, his reputation, how people saw himself, his righteousness own, his obedience to the law. Christ, all of that that I thought I had, I moved it over the column of loss. This stuff doesn't matter anymore. It matters in Christ. As greater than the many of us gather together all across the country, maybe even in this room, especially even in this room. And we take pride. We become so prideful of what we've done that we begin to judge other people. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I guarantee you. The snow's out. The roads are icy. We made it to church. What about those other people? As much as we do. We take pride in what we accomplish. If we were to take stock of our lives and what we value, what we important, when it comes to spiritual matters, what would be in our gain column? What would be in our lost column? For many of us, do the things of God. We think we do things that we, we don't cause emotion. We don't raise up. Uh, people, dissension. But a lot of us, our spirituality is based on what we do and not. We come to faith in Christ, we understand the gospel, and then we think we move work for ourselves.
Uh, <laughs> the youth to preach, you got to assume he's going to talk about poo-poo. says, I consider all things to be poop. Uh, Paul is in prison. We know from Ephesians chapter 6 that he, based on the things that he's seeing. In Ephesians chapter 6, he sees a Roman guard, and he compares our fight with Satan to the fight that the Romans have as soldiers. And so he, he looks at the armor that the Roman soldier has. Helmet. Helmet of salvation to fight against Satan. So Paul's in his prison cell. Prison wasn't like it is now where you have food and meals and nice quarters and a toilet. They didn't have those luxuries back then. And so from everything I've read, that when a prisoner was in prison, they would designate one half of their space to sleeping and the other half for bathroom stuff. And so Paul's writing this letter, and all he has in his prison cell, whatever it might have looked like, is a bed in this corner, a pile of refuse and dung in this corner. And he's saying, everything is lost compared to Christ. How big of a loss is it? It's like that. That giant pile of poop. Everything that's disgusting about it. The imagery should, should stir up emotions of disgusting grossness. It should be gross. That's what Paul's getting at. See, when you pursue the things that the earth and the world throws at you that they say are valuable, you're pursuing a pile of poop. There's no value in it. It's loss compared to knowing Christ. Christ is infinitely greater than those things. When we make an account of our lives, the things that are value, things that are important to us, on the column that says gain, it should only say Christ. The column says loss, it should say everything. Everything. Does that mean that we can't value things? If you're married, does that mean you don't value your wife? That you treat her like a giant pile of... No, you don't do that. You love your wife. You care for your wife. Why? Because Jesus is most important. Things become gain only when they come under the umbrella of Jesus. My favorite example for you, uh, youth or those of you who are in school, Paul says that education, you say, is loss. If you find your identity in your grades and your accomplishment, how many degrees you have, that's loss. There's no value in that. But if your pursuit of education points you to Jesus, then education now has gain because it's found in Jesus. What does that look like? Well, when you go to school and you study math and science, math and science are how to, how to understand the order and the universe that God created. And so when you see the function of, of creation and, and how everything fits together, you have a greater understanding of the glory of Christ who created it all. When you study English, it helps you understand God's word more clearly. God who speaks things into existence, you understand him more personably. Even when you go to Gym, you exercise the temple that God has given you. When you go to lunch, you thank God for providing food for you to eat that day, for giving you your daily bread, for nourishing you, for bringing you back to life that day, that morning. Everything is about knowing Christ. Education for education's sake is lost apart from knowing Christ. Paul says that everything 
is meaningless, it's worthless, it's lost apart from Christ. That's what the answer to all about Jesus really means. When I ask what's the purpose of life, the purpose of life is Jesus. What does that mean? It means nothing else matters other than Jesus. It's loss. It's loss. How do you know something might be loss? Paul says, I suffered all things. If you lost this or that, would you still find Jesus utterly beautiful and glorious? Your spouse might be under the category of Jesus in the category. What happens if you lose your spouse? Paul says it's all loss. Your spouse is lost because Christ is greater. You still have Christ. It's sad that we don't mourn. Paul aggressively attacks that idea that we're just robots with no emotion. But that doesn't lose your faith in Christ. That doesn't take away what you have in Christ. Paul says in verse 9, he says, and he says, my desire in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's a lot of verses, kind of end of passage with, but Paul is giving us five things that become gain come to know Christ. Knowing Him, gain. That when Jesus is all that matters, our passion should become Him. Who He is. Desiring of Him. He says the idea that I'm prepared to lose everything so that I might know Him. Jesus tells these two parables in Matthew chapter 13 about what the kingdom of God is like. In the first one, Matthew 13, 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure field. Man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. It's a treasure that's worth losing everything for. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Of great value went sold all that he had and bought it. The value of the pearl was so much better that he was willing to lose everything to buy that one thing. We say that Jesus is a treasure. Jesus is a pearl. He's supremely valuable. Are we prepared to lose all things in pursuit of him? All things become lost compared to knowing Him. The next thing it says in this passage is that uh, <clears throat> we receive Christ's righteousness. Verse 9, it says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When we know Christ, we gain His righteousness through the Gospel that we are declared in right standing before God. That our sin is no longer accounted to us, that it was given to Christ and His righteousness was given to us. We also gain the power of His resurrection. In verse 10 it says, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. 
we know Christ, we gain His power. Not in a weird, not in a, in a fictional, fantastical way. But the power that raised Christ from the dead is ours because we have the same Spirit. It's the power to overcome sin and temptation. Power to stand during trials and the power to endure suffering. Which brings us to our next point. If Christ is gain and the only thing that matters, we're going to suffer for Him. We're going to suffer for Him if Christ is supremely valuable. This flies in the face of our American culture where we uh, desire comfort and not suffering. But he says it this way, and I may share sufferings becoming like Him in His death. Paul says that, that we suffer we suffer with Christ. We have a high priest in Christ who sympathizes with us and knows what we're going through, that when we experience pain and loss in this life, it's not lost because we've already given it up. Sometimes suffering comes from losing things. You don't know how you're going to pay your bills this month and you're going to lose something. Maybe you have to sell your car, you have to sell your house to, to keep going. There's suffering, yes, but you've already counted that all loss and you still have Christ. And we share in His sufferings. As Christ suffered, He understands our suffering. The last thing we gain in Christ is resurrection of the dead. It ends by saying this, 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's clear that death is not the enemy. It does not bring us uh, shame and, and suffering, but that death is a vehicle to bring us to Christ. We move our eyes over to Philippians 1, 21-23. We, most of us know these verses. We've memorized these verses. Verse 21 says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There's our word gain again. That, that death is not loss. Death is not suffering. Death is gain. Why? Because you gain Christ. Verse 23, Paul says, I am pressed between the two, between living and dying. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Our world says that this life is what matters, what you do in this life matters, that pursue the things that you desire, do the things that you want to do, because after this life, it's over. Paul says that's loss. That whole idea is rubbish. It's meaningless. This life is not all that there is. This life brings you to the next life, and that life is found in Jesus. The ultimate question we face this morning is this. Will we find our joy, our treasure in Christ? Will we give up all things for Him or will we choose the passions and the desires of the flesh? Choose what this world says is valuable and meaningful. Or will we choose Christ? Throughout this passage, we see Paul's emphasis on Christ. In verse 1, he says, we rejoice in the Lord. Verse 3, he says, we glory in Christ Jesus and he says that, that I count it all as lost. Surpassing worth of knowing. He goes on, he says, I may gain Christ, be found in Christ. He wants to be like Christ. I think passages in verse 2, he says, and glory in Christ Jesus. Glory in Christ Jesus question is, who are we going to worship? Who are we going to follow? Jesus or this world? Paul's laid it out. Jesus is more important. Are you going to glory in Him or not? 
The word glory here is, is abundance, preeminence, prominence, that this is the most important thing in your life, but it also means the thing you most talk about, the thing you most pursue, the thing you're most passionate about. I don't know about you guys, but Super Bowl was last Sunday, right? The week leading up to the game, actually the season leading up to the game, we turn in every Sunday to the TV, we passionately look up stats and figures, and we play fantasy football, and we talk about the games, and we, we, we watch the games, and we talk about the games after the games, and then we obsess about the games for the next week. Do it over and over and over again for 17 weeks, and the playoffs come, and your team hasn't made it, so you choose a new team to be passionate about, and you're excited about them, and they make it to the Super Bowl, and then you become excited for that team, and you aren't excited about that team, and you, you fight against neighbors and friends. You talk about leading up to it. You talk about the game during the game. You celebrate. After the game is over, you talk about the game for weeks and weeks. You talk about what your team can do to do better. I glory. Last few weeks, that's been the prominent focus of my life. Glory in Christ would be the opposite. But we talk about, we talk about Christ. We talk about Christ. We're not afraid to talk about things we're passionate about. Something comes up that we have an opinion on, something that comes up that we want to talk about, we will have a million things to say. We can talk about it for hours and hours and hours, but when the opening comes to talk about Christ, we back off. We become ashamed. We become afraid. Paul says that's because you don't count everything as loss compared to knowing Christ. You don't glory in Him. The other option in Christ is glorying in self. Allow this verse for us this morning. Glorying in Christ is glorying in self. Paul says, for many, for many of whom I am often told, whom I have often told you, and tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Maybe they're not going out destroying people. But they're not what they say they believe. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. We don't have time to unpack that, but, but what he means, look at verse 19. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. They go about their shame. They're obsessed with their shame. He says that they passionately pursue food at all costs. Cost to health, cost to everything. They love their food. In the end, it leads to destruction because they glory in their shame. You can take out their God is their belly and you can put anything. Their God is their comfort. And they glory in their shame. Their God is their spouse, and they glory in their shame. Their God is the American dream, and they glory in their shame. And the end of that is destruction. It's not necessarily eternal destruction. You can be saved, you can love Jesus, and still waste your life pursuing the wrong thing. 
So Paul has emphasized over and over and over again this passage that, that Christ is great. Christ is glorious. Christ should be the, the ultimate pursuit, or we should pursue him over everything. Our greatest concern, our, our, our strongest passion. And so we're left then to respond. There's nothing new in this passage that we don't know, like I said in the introduction. Jesus is the answer. The same questions we answered at the beginning are the same questions the same way now. Nothing's changed in our answers. What's the greatest goal? No, Jesus, who is the ultimate joy in life. Jesus, who's the object? That's why are we gathered here today to worship Jesus together? Have changed. Would you change your morning? That as you reflect on your obedience to those statements, that you would see more and more growth in obedience. That as you walk in Christ, as you become to get to know Him, that you become things as lost compared to knowing Him. That you wouldn't pursue the passions of this world. And so, teenagers. Christ worth it? Yes. Yes. The world tells you it's not, but the world glories in their shame and it leads to destruction. Don't pursue what the world tells you to do. Pursue Christ. Does God speak into your issue through Jesus Christ? Yes. The solution to your marriage is not a sermon on how to fix your marriage. The solution is the gospel. Jesus is your marriage when you on him is the ultimate purpose, not your spouse. Be single for the rest of your life. God speaks into that. The goal of life is not to be the goal of life is to be with Christ. You don't need a spouse to be with Christ. You're with Christ. So you consider that lost compared to knowing Christ. You're older in age and, and there's more years behind you than there are ahead of you. Did you waste your life? you look back, has been characterized by obedience to Christ, by pursuit of Him, or a pursuit of the American dream. We need you to help us. We have more years ahead of us, behind, hopefully, God willing. How do we not waste them? Come alongside and help us with that. Repeat the phrase, Philippians 1.27, striving side by side for the faith the gospel. None of us are in this alone. We're in it together, building each other up, striving side by side for this truth. Let's pray. We thank you for your gospel. Thank you uh, righteousness that we can be with you on what we achievement as we look at what the world offers, help us to be all of that for the name of your Jesus. Let's build each other up and encourage each other with that. In Jesus' name, amen.